Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden Podcast. My name is Gabrielle Hakohen, and I would like to once again wish my co-host and all of our listeners a happy pride, a joyous pride, a good pride to all ye queer folk. Happy pride to you as well, Gabby, and to all of our listeners. I'm Sadie Carpenter, and I am an ex-fundamentalist, but I am not and never will be an ex-bisexual. You mean to tell me that you didn't cash in your buy card when you got married to a man <laughs> nope <laughs> absolutely nope. did not uh would still be by if i were married to a woman uh, a lot of people like to trash talk bisexuals as disloyal or cheaters or just indecisive or say that we're no longer by when we become monogamous with someone or enter into a, a committed relationship and that's just not correct um the way i usually like to frame it for people is i picked a person not a gender I love him very much. Yeah. Well, maybe they're, yeah, maybe they're just jealous because you've got all those extra options. <laughs> uh, maybe. No, that, yeah. that was free content. That was just my, my every, every year I like to make a reminder that bi people are still bi, no matter who we're in a relationship with. But that's enough about me. We have a lot to get into today. 
Yes, 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 yes. Because this podcast, the Leaving Eden podcast, is the story of Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the IFB, the Independent Fundamental Baptist cult. We seek to educate and to inform our listeners about the dangers of this cult, other cults, and uh, the threat that they pose to society as a whole. We seek to support freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. But today we're not talking about your life, Sadie. Uh, today we are talking about an experience that thankfully you managed to avoid, although others sadly were not so lucky. Yes. So today we're going to be talking about conversion therapy and the ex-gay movement. I do want to let our listeners know that we are going to be talking in a general and brief sense about some of the methods used in conversion therapy. Uh, the word torture does come up quite a bit. But we're going to be fairly clinical about it. As always, we try not to glorify violence, especially not violence against those who don't deserve it. Yeah. So major TW. If you don't want to hear about that, then I mean, that's what today's episode is about. So you might just want to uh, just tune in next week when we have an interview with an ex-IFB drag queen, which is going to be super fun. But, you know, as always, we try to be you know general and, and make it as non-triggering as we can. But before we get into our episode for today, I thought we could read a couple of listener stories that have something to do with today's topics. Yes, 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 yes. So this first story, do you want to read it or do you want me to read it? So I'm going to ask you to read this one because this is from a personal friend of mine and I don't, I just don't think I could do it without crying. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and read it. Okay. then. Yeah, that is sweet. That is sweet. Um, so this is from Jess, uh, who uses she, her pronouns. Wonderful. Okay. So, hey, Gavi and Sadie, I'm responding to your request for personal experiences with being LGBT plus in the IFB. Sadie, you've brought up a couple of times that the idea that a cult leader has to rely on you to keep yourself in check due to brainwashing. Mine is such a story. I grew up in the family of a missionary. The pressure to be holier than thou is unrivaled, even by pastor's kids. This plays a large part in why it was so difficult to not only accept myself for who I am, but to be willing to let other people see that. That, and never being allowed to speak for oneself, makes this story a prime example of how easy it is to allow yourself to be brainwashed. Sadie and I were friends growing up, and I'm sure that she could tell you that I was the typical tomboy who ran around in the most boyish costume a girl could wear while still maintaining that awful three inches below the knee modesty policy. When we played, I was always the protector or the husband or the knight in shining armor. I'm bringing in here to say that I can confirm this. Jess has been my pretend husband more than once when we were little kids. 10 out of 10, recommend. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yeah. Always swinging a sword or lugging around a toy rifle or lightsaber and forever beating up boys. Looking back, I definitely should have seen <laughs> the signs that I wasn't straight, except for one thing. I was vaguely aware of the idea of gay men, but completely unaware of the idea of lesbianism since our exposure to the world was limited to mostly 1950s television 
and radio, I never considered that I was anything but the spirited young heroine <laughs> in every closely monitored romance novel I obsessed over. In fact, my mom continually tried convincing me that there was no other option than that. Oh, that's a bummer. My gay awakening was Emily Fields from Pretty Little Liars, which was definitely not on the list of approved shows. After I graduated high school, I snuck behind my parents' back to watch Pretty Little Liars religiously just for Shay Mitchell. I've recently found out that a lot of queer girls refer to her character as their gay awakening as well, which I find extremely validating. Yep. Armed with what? <laughs> I just said, yep. <laughs> really? Uh, have you seen this show? Oh, yeah. I, I haven't seen it. Is it good? Should I binge it? Um, you know what? Maybe you might you might should. It kind of jumps the shark in later seasons, but okay. But I I liked it coming out of the IFB. So okay, well I, I might have to check it out. Okay. Um. Anyway, back to uh back to Jess's letter. Armed with this curiosity and the distinct abhorrence of a life limited to being some missionary's wife, I went to West Coast Baptist College to try and figure out a purpose to my life. I didn't question my attraction to women as much as I questioned why we believed that it was wrong. I even tried writing a really poorly researched paper on the subject for one of my classes. I'm surprised that didn't get me an invitation to anyone's office for counseling. <laughs> the summer I turned 20, I met a girl and fell absolutely head over heels. We were working at a camp and completely removed from the overbearing toxic environment that we had both been subject to. She was my first kiss as well, uh, as much, much more, and it couldn't have been more perfect. But summer ended, and we had to go back to college. The week before registration was the women's conference at the church that ran the college. I honestly couldn't tell you a single word that was spoken there because I was so stuck in my head that as beautiful as our relationship was, we were lying to our spiritual leaders by keeping it a secret. I was so eaten up with guilt that even though I knew that telling someone would mean getting kicked out of the college, I still did it. I had decided to break up with what I thought was the love of my life to keep her from getting caught up in it, but that didn't work, and I ended up getting her kicked out as well. Oh, that's very sad. Bummer. Hmm. I ended up telling a friend of mine who I had suspected had gone through something similar, so I assumed that they would be able to, at the very least, comfort me through my devastating breakup. This friend then encouraged me to talk to the Dean of Women about getting counseling for my sins. I, of course, knowing no other action, went with them to ask for advice from the one person who basically told me, stop and you obviously can't continue to go to school here. I agreed and made arrangements to get my stuff and go home. But that's just where the story begins. Oh, no. My parents at this time were overseas helping to build a church, so I moved in with my grandparents and sought counseling from my local pastor's wife about what to do. She advised that my first move was to tell my parents what was going on, but before I could, someone from the college, who was my mother's former college professor, had already called up my parents and told them what happened. Oh, no. I'll never know what she said to them but my parents decided at that moment they were coming back to the u.s to deal with me i don't remember there being much talking on the phone call but one thing that sticks out is how my mom was sobbing 
asking what she did wrong. How could she have prevented me from becoming a lesbian? It broke me, and I've never argued with them about the subject. Wow, that's... I know they meant it out of love, but I'll always feel guilty for ruining their calling from God. I knew that as soon as anyone found out, churches would begin pulling funding from my parents so they wouldn't be able to work overseas. I also knew that I would forever be the black sheep of the family and that if I didn't repent, uh, my parents, pastor friends, and church contacts would blame my parents for raising a lesbian daughter. The first thing they did, even before returning to the USA, was to research a variety of straight conversion camps. Had I been a couple of years younger, I'm certain they would have sent me without giving me a choice in the matter. Thankfully, I was old enough to know that the camps wouldn't accept me without my consent, and it was never forced on me. But then came the counsel from the pastor and his wife, and apparently I was one of God's chosen to live as a a celibate for the rest of my life. And I submitted. I truly tried to change who I was for over a year, and it was absolute agony. I overthought every action or relationship with any female that I became friends with. I hated myself and became extremely depressed, locking myself in a dark room for days at a time. I recently came across some messages I had sent to a friend while I was going through this, and the conversations I had were so cringy. I was a pitiful mess, torn between attempting to remain holy and trying to understand what I was feeling. Okay, I'm yes, I'm sure they were cringy, but like you were going through it, no judgment. Roughly a year later, I began another secret relationship with a girl and decided to join the Air Force to get away from it all. My family was all for joining the military, but eventually I was outed a second time, this time by the pastor's wife who had promised me confidentiality while I was continuing to try and make sense of what was so evil about loving someone. When my mother found out, she said some horrible things to me, things that I'll never forget. And then she told me that I had a choice to make, either stop seeing my girlfriend or don't return home. She was adamant that she couldn't have a rebellious spirit influencing any of my other siblings. I was heartbroken. And if I'd been able to find the words to explain myself, I would have, but I couldn't. I couldn't bring myself to backtalk her. So I left. She didn't hug me back and she didn't let me see anyone else to tell them goodbye. That is still one of the worst days of my life. <sighs> Sorry, I'm tearing up a little bit here. No, that's why I was. Yeah. I mean, this is like one of my best friends. This is somebody I love with my whole heart. That's why I couldn't read it. Yeah, I've done a lot of growing and learning, and I'm finding my voice. I'm starting to stand up for myself and my beliefs. Hell, I'm starting to have beliefs of my own. I've been surrounded by good people that have been a better support over the past three years than I ever thought I would have. She's never apologized for the things that she said, nor have I asked her to. I know she'll never see any of my relationships as legitimate. I know she'll never be able to accept a woman as my partner. And I know that my story isn't special because of that, but she has reached out. And over the past year, we've been able to talk to one another again, but it was worth it. The grief, the self-hatred, the isolation, it was all worth it because if I weren't a small part of the Rainbow Mafia, I never would have left that life. I was too good at pretending I was better than everyone else because I was the daughter of a missionary. I was more educated in theology than the rest of the girls at that college, and I was so full of myself and my position in life that I refused to recognize 
that everything that I was caught up in was so twisted. So yes, I'm out, but not by choice. So now comes the work on being proud of who I am. Not so that I can flaunt it in front of my family or the friends who condemn them for it, but so that one day I can call my mom and confidently tell her that I am in a relationship with a wonderful woman and ask her advice on how to deal with her. I want to be proud so that one day I can introduce my girlfriend or partner or wife to my friends and family without feeling two inches tall. I'm not perfect. In fact, I'm not really even that good at sticking up for myself or my fellow LGBT plus family, but I'm learning and I'm trying and I'm getting rid of the deeply rooted internal homophobia. And if there's anything I could share, it's this as shitty as it is to have your control of your sense of self ripped away from you when someone outs you as (laughs) yeah. And as vulnerable as you are, Without the answers, you need to pull yourself back together. It will get better. You are who you design yourself to be, or not what other people expect from you. Give yourself time to figure it out. And there are a lot of us out here who are rooting for you. Gabi Sadie, I love your podcast. And you've given me some of the tools to realize how far I've come. Thank you so much for continuing to share your stories. Oh, my God. Sincerely, Jess. So now you see why I was not reading that. Because you made me read it, man. That was I'm sorry. I'm I'm tearing up too. I couldn't I had to try to read it without crying. That was difficult. Yeah. I did. I've I failed. Jess, oh my God. Oh, that was whew. Yeah, I've known I've known Jess since making me cry on Mike. Yeah, since she was about six years old. Maybe maybe a little bit longer than that. Wow. And we were childhood best friends. Um and we still stay in touch. And I just, I just have to say, I love this girl. I'm sorry, now you got me started. That was, that was such a story. No, I, was... I just, I love her so dearly, and I'm so proud of how far she's come. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. I'm, so, you know, like, but one of the things that really stuck out to me was how uh, it wasn't just, oh, this is on you. You're, you're shunned for this. It was her whole family. You know, their, the whole family would, would have consequences, and that's just one way of, of keeping people separate from each other and and drawing divisions and and you know so growing up as a pastor's kid we were always told that if one of us misbehaved that my dad would lose his job because there's a a scripture verse that says that the pastor should be in control of his household so if uh if we as pastor kids weren't perfect then my dad could get fired and we would have to move somewhere else but for missionary kids it's even worse because ifb missionaries are uh, they depend on small monetary dona- donations from hundreds of churches. So a church's monthly donation to their family could be as small as like $50 or $100. And they go from church to church and solicit those those micro monthly pledges. And then that's their money to support themselves on the mission field. So if you're an IFB missionary family and you get to the mission field and half of your churches pull your support – you are sunk. You are done. You are stuck somewhere. You can't even get home. You can't get home. And it, it is, it's not a good, wow. it's not good. And man, oh, wow. That's, that's so twisted. I'm just, that's a heartbreaking story that I, you know, Jess, I've, I, I feel for you. I really do. I'm, I'm so happy that your life is much better than it was before. But that, that section where you were just like in the dark room, oh, God, 
Much love. I'm sending much love to you. Again, I'm sorry for making you cry on air. You did make me cry. You did make me cry on mic. That's fine, though. It's 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 an emotional story. It's a powerful story. I had to depend on you to do it. I'll read the next one. You can read the next one. You made me. Oh God, that made me. Oh yeah. I mean, but like that. One of the things though is like that's 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 true. You know, it's it's so tough. Like if you're a missionary, like but like say you have so many kids, you know, I mean, they're going to have some kids, right. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's lots of missionaries, lots of missionaries have kids, but like, how common is it to have queer kids? I mean, how, how many people are like, it's about as common as being left-handed, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm roughly. left-handed. It's about as common, if not more so than being left-handed. Yeah, 10-ish percentage of, pe- percent of people, depending on, you know, generation and, and other factors, that make people more likely to come out or not between eight and 11 is what I've yeah, seen. Yeah. But but think about how many left-handed people, you know, and realize that you probably know that many LGBT people, whether you're aware of that or not. And I feel like that's a great analogy actually, because people are born left-handed. It's not the only thing that makes them who they are, but it's a part of what makes up a person. And in the past, people used to hurt children who were left-handed to try to fix them and make them right-handed instead because of a a false belief that left-handed people were destined to be criminals or bad people. But now we understand that being left-handed is just a part of who someone is, and there's nothing to fix there. Yeah, fun fact. My great-grandfather, Laser, was born left-handed, but they made him learn to write right-handed. And when he came to America from Russia, he had to learn English, but, you know... He could write in Hebrew and Yiddish with his right hand, and he could write in English with his left hand at the same time. Okay, number one, your great-grandpa had a great name, and number two, he had a great talent. Um, But number three, trying to fix left-handed children was really common across Asia and Europe for just centuries. Yeah. His name was Lazar. It's actually derived from the Hebrew name Lazarus. And you do know that there's a major New Testament story and an IFB children's song about Lazarus. Was that Harry or was that Chuck? Oh, that was Chuck. She just need to feed her. She made a, a cat noise. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, she's listen. She's listening yeah. to the cat. <laughs> yeah. There's a. There's actually there's a butcher in Fiddler on the Roof named Laser Wolf, and that's funny because I have a different great grandfather whose name was Wolf. Oh, that's a cool coincidence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You want to hear another one? Sure. Yeah, is that Tevya's wife in the story is named Golda, which is my great grandfather, great grandmother's name. Okay, but this is all kind of making sense because your ancestors and your relatives lived like they lived a life pretty similar to Fiddler on the Roof, right? Yes, extremely similar. But I don't, I don't want to derail all these queer stories by talking about my not queer Jewish story because, uh, okay, it's not about it, this. Isn't about that. But yeah, yeah. Are you, so we've got another story to read. Uh, our second story is from Jenny, who uses she/her pronouns, and I'll read this one, and hopefully, I won't cry. Jenny says. I can still remember the day it happened. I was a graduate student at Bob Jones University, and I was required to attend chapel just two days a week instead of the four days that undergraduate students attended. I was sitting in the balcony, Bible and notebook in hand, and the guest preacher began his message. He said, If you are attracted to people of the same sex, even if you never act on it, you are sinning against God and you need to repent. He went on in the same vein for the rest of his message, but I couldn't hear it because I was stuck on that one sentence. I was a graduate student at the world's most unusual university, and I had been hiding my, quote-unquote, same-sex attractions since the day I set foot on campus. I had known I was gay since probably fourth grade, although I never put that word to it. 
My female classmates had crushes on the new boy in class while I couldn't stop looking at the girl whose desk was next to mine. In high school, I was able to excuse my lack of dating with the fact that I attended public school. And of course, I would only date a Christian, aka another fundamentalist. Things in college became more complicated. So many of my roommates and friends had come to college for their MRS degree, and I just didn't get it at all. There were plenty of activities on campus where dating was allowed or even encouraged, but I always went by myself or with a group of friends. I was so busy with classes and other required activities that I didn't really have time to even think about dating, even if I had wanted to. When chapel got out that day, I left the building on shaking legs. I remembered what had happened to the girl in the youth group who had come out. The entire youth group basically shunned her at the behest of our youth pastor because she was a Christian who was, quote, living in known sin. And every semester, there were rumors on campus of girls caught kissing in closets. These stories always ended in the girls being shipped, aka expelled, and sent home in shame. Of course, I didn't want any of those kinds of consequences, but the preacher said that even being attracted to the same sex was a sin, so I knew I had to make this right somehow. I sent a very carefully worded email to my pastor's wife of the church that I attended while at BJU and asked if I could meet with her. At a tall table, in a Panera, in careful low tones, I told her what the preacher had said. I told her about my desires and mentioned that I had never acted on them, had never held hands with a girl, had never kissed anyone, etc. It should come as no surprise to anyone familiar with the IFB that my pastor's wife had no idea how to help me. She had never counseled anyone who struggled with same-sex attraction, uh, SSA, that's an acronym that that, uh, fundamentalists use. She advised me to tell some friends who could pray for me to continue with my plans to go overseas and, and teach after graduation, and above all, not to tell any BJU staff about this. She hoped that by graduating and moving away, the change of scenery and new job would be enough to cure me. I felt a flicker of hope leaving that meeting. I could do this, I told myself. I can talk to a few of my close friends so they can pray for me, and in a few months I'd be far away teaching at an IFB school where no one knew me anyway. I sat alone in my dorm room and carefully crafted messages to a small handful of friends, fellow grad students who had known me since I started on campus as a freshman. What I expected from my friends was something like this. Thank you for trusting me with this information. I will pray for you. Is there anything else you'd like me to do? This is not the response I received. I had one friend slip a note underneath my dorm door telling me she could no longer talk to me or spend time with me. Another friend said, if I came to see her at her dorm room, that we'd have to keep the door open, and that if we ate together in the cafeteria, we'd have to eat with a group of people. I had one friend who told me that the Bible says to confess our sins, but not our specific sins, and she never spoke to me after that. I felt like a pariah. I was so alone, and I didn't dare tell anyone else because I didn't want to lose the few friends I had left. I put my head down and focused on finishing my final semester and preparing for my move to the IFB school where I would soon be teaching. After graduation, I moved to a new place and started teaching at an IFB school. The school arranged housing for the staff, so I lived with two teachers who also taught at the school and attended the attached church. I was more ensconced in a bubble than I had been at BJU. The junior and senior high teachers had a weekly staff meeting, and at one of the meetings, a staff member brought up a concern about a specific student. Johnny had been exhibiting flamboyant behavior that is commonly associated with gay men. His mannerisms, his way of speaking, his enthusiasm for less masculine pursuits. The principal running the meeting shared the staff member's concern and suggested that he begin to mentor Johnny so that they could prevent him from turning gay. Mm. This led to a discussion where we were asked to consider the rest of the student body and name other students with similar mannerisms, as well as female students who were too masculine. Each student who was named was paired with a teacher who would be responsible for mentoring that student and helping to keep them on the straight and narrow. 
I sat in this meeting dumbfounded that we were judging preteens and teens based on a stereotyped set of behaviors. We had, in essence, become judge and jury and decided these students must be queer because of their behaviors, even though none of them had expressed anything that suggested they were actually queer. Everyone else in this meeting seemed to agree that the best thing to do was to mentor these students, and it was apparently okay to name them and judge them, not for poor academic performance or problematic classroom behavior, but for being a girl with short hair who sneaks into the bathroom after school to take her skirt off or a boy who has a high voice is expressive with his hands and enjoys theater. I had already been in fear that someone may discover my struggle with SSA, but on that day, I began to fear for my students too. I didn't know at the time, but this was the first of many flaws that I would see that would lead me out of the IFB. Mm. And that's that's from Jenny. And thank you, Jenny, for your story. Thanks for writing to us. That's, oof, man, to know like behind the scenes what goes on there. Like that. Mm. I think Jenny was the first person to write us. Really? I think she was the pioneer. Well, th- thanks for your letter. Um, I'm really glad that you've written it because that just, wow, that was eye-opening and upsetting. It was. I thought it would be really appropriate to start this episode with these two stories in particular because they both have the common theme of a person and the people around that person thinking that them their their attractions or their sex, sexual orientation are something to be fixed or cured and trying to cure somebody else or trying to fix yourself. And I think that the most important thing for us to focus on here is uh, when we were talking about this idea of conversion therapy is the real people uh, that this does harm to. And so that has to be the lens that we look at this through. Right. And, and the thing is, they try to, I think people who are, who believe that you can be fixed from being gay, I think they, the, the thing about that they do is they try to frame it in such a positive manner. The word healing gets thrown around a lot. Like people who have gone through conversion therapy might say that God has healed me from the sin of homosexuality. So I think that people who are proponents of this really work to make it seem very positive when in reality, of course, it's hell on earth for people. Yeah, it's not healing. It's abuse. It's not therapy. It is denial of a piece of a person's humanity. Absolutely. But I wanted to go back to something that Jess said, which is that she was told by a pastor's wife that she was one of God's chosen ones to be celibate. So for more than a year, she tried to fix herself by isolating herself. So she was participating in trying to brainwash herself before she eventually realized that this wasn't something she needed to fix at all because she wasn't broken to begin with. So let's get it because this is the history. Let's get into the history of what this is and how it's evolved and how it functions. Because uh, that I think is. is Yeah, I want to I want to just do like a brief one. history of this. Yeah. So conversion therapy, um, as it is known, is a quote unquote treatment for gay people, for queer people to try to turn them straight, to try to turn them into heterosexuals. Yes. And unlike some of the topics that we commonly discuss here, conversion therapy is not unique to the IFB at all. It's not even unique to fundamentalist Christians. In fact, it didn't start as a Christian thing at all, which surprised me. Uh, I found out doing research that it began in the early, very late 1800s or very early 1900s, just as psychology and psychiatry as we know them were coming into being. Yeah. So a few weeks ago, uh, we were talking about how being transgender is currently technically classified as a mental disorder and how we feel very strongly that that is wrong. Uh, by, oh yeah! By the way, uh, shouts out to uh, Will who who's uh, from Church Split for 
saying dumb stuff on Twitter and making us talk about that on our podcast episode to begin with. Yeah, but anyway, relating to that, I mentioned the fact that uh, it used to be that homosexuality was thought of as a mental disorder and now it is not. Right. So these discussions of conversion therapy, including just talk therapy, which is still misguided but fairly benign compared to, you know, actual torture, didn't start from the assumption that homosexuality is a sin. They started from the assumption that it's a a mental disorder like schizophrenia or bipolar or dissociative or anything else. Freud in particular said that maybe some people could be cured with talk therapy, but he thought that most LGBT people couldn't. Freud didn't seem to think that it was that much of a big deal. I think it's funny, though, how much of psychology is based on stuff that Freud said, even though we know now, like, thanks to modern psychology, how f***ing wrong Freud was about almost everything. Right? (laughs) Right. But but somehow, like, psychology works. Like, I guess that's science, you know, you have to ask the question and keep pursuing it, even if that means doing a complete 180 degree, you know, even if that means doing a complete 180 on everything that you think is true. Yeah, that, that's correct. I, I'm sorry. I was I was really thinking of how how I could possibly make a your mom joke because Freud came up. Oh God. Um, but I don't think I can come up with one. And then I thought that I'd make some d- jokes too. Why not? While you're at it. Yeah. Well, then I thought I would make that's yeah. I thought I would make a came up joke because Freud came up. But I don't think I don't think I'm gonna have anything for those jokes today because that's not the point. The point is the history of conversion therapy. So one of the first very vocal proponents of conversion therapy was Edmund Burglar. He was a contemporary of Alfred Kinsey, uh, kind of thinking, we're thinking like 50s and 60s. So Alfred Kinsey was one of the first sex researchers to say that being gay or being queer wasn't an issue or a sickness or a mental disorder at all, and that there was no need to be cured because that person wasn't sick. Burglar was his main opposition. So Burglar and psychiatrists who followed his train of thought were the originators of a lot of terrible, terrible methods that are still being practiced 60, 70 years later in Christian conversion, quote-unquote, conversion therapy. Yeah, so this guy, Kinsey, seems like, you know, he's a real deal here. But, like, one of the things that kind of comes up to me is that one of the things that you hear about, especially from earlier in, in the century with scientists who are, like, experimental scientists, is that they'll have, like different opinions with each other and then they'll just like go out of their way to try to prove themselves right or prove each other wrong you know what i'm saying like the, yeah this is a thing that you would hear about so i think it was like the beginnings of pop psychology right because yeah. it's the first time that psychologists and the and this leads to other doctors like this leads to dr phil this leads to dr oz um yeah. psychologists and other types of doctors trying to become a famous doctor not just a doctor Right. And so like what you see here is you see some guy being like, oh, well, I'm going to this guy thinks that homosexuality is just intrinsic to a person. It's not something that I'll prove him wrong. Let's see what we can do to these people to make them not gay. That's kind of the vibe I'm getting here. This is just one of the early issues of pop psychology. Yeah. Like like now the whole thing is like, oh, is dissociative identity disorder? Is it real or is it not? And like. The, the arguing one, huh? about about DID and BPD are like what psychologists do now. And at the time, it was just the hot issue. It was, was how can you change somebody who's gay into being straight? Interesting. Huh. So, yeah. So, like, that's what this is. This is this is part of the roots of pop psychology. Yikes. Anyway, Kinsey wasn't perfect by any means, but he did a lot of good for the world. 
And the point I want to get to is that these methods are still being used to harm people in the name of fixing them. But these methods didn't start with religious conversion therapy. They came from pop psychology, from psychology journals, and people like pseudo-religious bullshitter John Harvey Kellogg. Yes, the cornflakes guy. Um, if you want to learn more about John Harvey Kellogg, it is pretty graphic and gross, but it's a really good episode. Uh, Behind the Bastards is the podcast. Did a, I think a two-part episode on Kellogg that was really informative. Again, content warning, it's pretty rough, but it was a great episode. If you happen to be a Behind the Bastards fan... Tweet at Robert Evans and tell him that he needs to do a Jack Hiles episode and that he needs to either have me as a guest or have me just write the episode for him as a guest writer. Sorry, that's besides the point. I really want to be on Behind the Bastards. But the the overarching point that I wanted to make here is that the IFB just like continually on psychology as a tool of the devil. But the IFB and other fundamentalist Christian groups are still using the methods that came directly from pop psychology and what they call conversion therapy. Yeah. So in the early 1900s, homosexuality, it wasn't all that mainstream, was it? It was not mainstream. It was definitely, definitely stigmatized. And people did think it was a sin. But the perception of it being like the sin was not what it is today. I mean, you can hear about Boston marriages, which is... um you know, women who live together and they're roommates and best friends mm. and they own a house together. And you know, usually one of them's a journalist of some sort, um, have a lot of cats. And it was really, po- really common in Boston. I mean, as far back as, as the 18th century. So like, I think it wasn't that, that queer people had any kind of safety or acceptance in society, but it wasn't like the big sin because now you know, people who had objections against gay people that were not for religious reasons have pretty much let them go for the most part. And like, I think the the most vocal people who hate queer people are hiding behind the banner of like, this is sinful. But like during this time, during the early 1900s, uh, this uh, the homosexuality isn't something that the preachers would have been harping on and on and on and on about. No, like there would have been religious people who were saying that it was a sin. People, especially like Kellogg, who I mentioned a minute ago, there would have been preachers who had a sermon about it or something, but it was not the big sin, the worst one, the big kahuna, like it is now in the evangelical church with like, it's pretty much like being gay and abortion or like the two things that they really like to harp on. It wasn't like that back then. Right. So around this time, I mean, it would have been if you were a drinker, right? Like that, that, that's what would have been the worst sin. The preachers would have been going on and on and on and on about how liquor mm-hmm. is from the devil and how it turns otherwise good men into violent abusers and cheaters and gamblers. That's yeah, what they like would there have been was talking. a yeah. different, like the big sin back then, and it was probably drinking uh, or adultery, maybe. Well, but it yeah, because but those two would have been linked, and you know, it exactly. would have been with the the temperance movement was coming in as well. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, conservatives were trying to change the laws of the country to prevent people from being able to drink because they thought it was a sin. And this kind of sounds familiar for some reason. Yeah. Anyway, um, conversion therapy was – so conversion therapy wasn't a thing that – way back in, like, the, the 19th century post, you know, Reconstruction era. And then it came into being in the – you know, through the 1890s, 1910s. Uh, And then it was popular in mainstream psychiatry from the 1930s until around the time of the Stonewall riots in 1969. So what kind of treatments were they doing? 
there was a really wide range of things being done to people. Everything from like being forced to have sex with people of the opposite gender to being forced to watch porn featuring heterosexual intercourse to uh, lobotomies, Mm. which is just terrible. That's awful. Also, different types of aversion therapy, which basically means associating pain or displeasure with the unwanted feelings of attraction. So like like electroshock therapy. But also, on the other hand, there was sometimes just like extensive talk therapy or hypnotherapist or something relatively benign. Yeah. Have you seen A Clockwork Orange? I have not. It is on my list. Yeah, there's an aversion therapy scene in the movie, but man, I, I, I just keep forgetting how wild medicine and science used to be like 80 years ago. I mean, it was just either giving people cocaine and quaaludes or like giving them lobotomies. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's how it used to They'd just be like, there's something, have a lobotomy or have cocaine and quaaludes. I mean, I mean, yeah, Rose Kennedy had a lobotomy famously. Oh, yeah. JFK's oh, sister. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they should have just given all the gay people cocaine and quaaludes. You know, based on the sample size <laughs> of gay people that I know, I'm not sure that that would not have gone over too well. Yeah, not <laughs> not have a, gone over? Yeah. That might have been a popular <laughs> answer. Yeah, it was like 50 years too early. Yeah. Um, <laughs> jokes aside, conversion therapy went out of style in mainstream psychology, psychiatry around the time of the Stonewall riots in 1969. And things changed pretty quickly for things changing. Um, by 1973, the APA voted to remove homosexuality as a mental disorder from the DSM. And yeah. then the, I think the updated DSM, where it was not listed, came out in 74. Yeah, but uh, this time period, uh, in the late uh, 1960s, early 1970s, that's when the evangelical movement was is like really in full swing. And they're focusing heavily on like so-called sins that are apparent in broad culture so like being a hippie drug use racial integration women's liberation and of course homosexuality right um there was this this shift and we'll talk about it more in another episode um but the shift in the evangelical movement to hating modernism which is what they called you know hippies and you mean like the empire state building (laughs) Um, no, religious modernism, Re- religious modernism, mm-hmm. not architectural modernism. Oh, I can say all those words because... in a row. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the, the evangelical movement took up the torch of so-called conversion therapy from the psychology community. And this, I was not able to find like a person who was the bridge between those two things. This is still weird to me because fundies hate psychiatry so much but just in the course of between 1973, when the APA removed homosexuality from the DSM as a mental disorder, and 1976, when Love, One's Out, Love One Out was founded around the time Exodus International was founded. Um, just in the course of those two or three years, it almost completely flipped from an e- from a psychology thing to an evangelical thing. Do they hate... It's, it's weird because fundies hate psychiatry. Do they hate psychiatry more than they hate the gays, though? I guess not. That's the question. Yeah. I, I get. So it's just it's so odd to me because, like, according to fundies, everything psychiatry is just evil. But they didn't even make up their own methods for conversion therapy. They just took the ones that had been used by the psychiatrists and, like, added in some random Bible verses. You mean did, like, a Christian citation? 
Yes. <laughs> yes, you get no. your citation in heaven. So you you mean the like basically psychiatry decides this is useless, this doesn't work, this is ineffective, and they stop doing them. But then the fundies are just like, hmm, let me get some of that. You know the meme where it's the guy hiding behind the trees, rubbing his hands together? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not a meme from a check track, sadly. Sadly, no. No, like that's that's kind of exactly what it was they just like oh hey psychiatry you have all these like ineffective tactics we'll take those yeah and then these tactics just just torture and harm people and about three to ten percent maybe ten percent is very generous of people who go through these therapies say that they worked yikes yeah so um Mm. that's kind of the start of the whole thing let's go take up the offering and when we come back, we can talk more about the turning point where conversion therapy became specifically an evangelical fundamentalist Christian thing and what the fundies did with it. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, we'll, back, we'll be back in a couple minutes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine with the weather warming up it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a pilates class or outdoor guided walk Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, Gavrielle here. If you enjoy the Leaving Eden podcast, head over to our Facebook group, Eden Exodus, where you can talk to other fans, ask us questions, and share memes. That's Facebook.com slash Eden Exodus. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Leaving Eden Podcast, and you'll get access to extended and uncensored episodes. You can also support our show by recommending it to your family and your friends. The Leaving Eden Podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. And now, back to the show. So we are back. We are here talking about gay conversion therapy, which is as ineffective as it is abusive. Yep. So perhaps one of the most famous groups for conversion therapy was Exodus International. And this was founded in 1976 and it closed permanently in 2012. Some other really well-known names in the broader evangelical world of conversion therapy groups would be the Restored Hope Network, uh, Joel Joel 225 International. I don't know why these all end in the word international. And Courage International, which is the Catholic 12-step anti-gay program. The Catholic one doesn't seem to actually torture people from what I can find out. So I guess that that we get like half a point for no physical torture being involved. I mean, that is an incredibly low bar, but congratulations on being better than Kim Jong-un. Uh, yeah. I guess. I, I don't know. Okay, so what's Exodus International's claim to fame? So two things. First would be their purchase of Focus on the Family's ex-gay franchise, franchise. ministry. 
um, ministry. It's called Love One Out. Mm. I don't know. It just aside from all like the homophobia and the torture and like all that stuff, they're buying and selling ministries for like millions of dollars. And this really makes me feel like this might be the kind of thing that Jesus would have flipped some tables over. Like a franchise. So it's like an Applebee's. So love like one a, out. No, not like a place. It, or like love, a, like a. I guess it's a homophobic Applebee's. So it's like a Cracker Barrel. Oh hey, don't hate on Cracker Barrel. I love Cracker <laughs> Barrel. I'm too southern okay, for you fine, to hate on fine. Cracker Barrel. I, 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 it's it's like a Chick Fil A. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Um. No. Chick Fil A. <laughs> Their sandwiches are good, but I can't eat there because they they're, hate. So, they're so delicious and i oh, they're so delicious but they fucking hate gay people it's fuck. it's such it bullshit. makes me really sad because i really like their sandwiches um okay let's not make me sad over chick-fil-a uh, right now um and then they like tried to say that they quit giving money to the the hate groups it's just the guy in charge yeah. and i was like oh my god this is the best day in my life i can eat chick-fil-a again and then they were like no we didn't actually stop giving money to hate groups jk jk oh, that, was, that was a bad day for me mm. um oh well as long as Krispy Kreme isn't homophobic i guess i'll get by anyway uh love imagine what out. we would do if t-bell was homophobic i would be so mad man i'd I be would, fine jonathan would, would be upset i'd be pissed anyway love one out so it was a brand name for focus on the family branded conferences so, like, a group of people with a slideshow that would travel around the country and, like, set up at different evangelical churches and, like, charge for tickets and then tell those people how to fix gay people. Mm, so, like, a TED Talk? Oh, okay. So, yes, like that. Like, a brand name uh. <laughs> conference. Like, how do you sell, if it's a ministry, though, how do you sell it for millions? Like, that makes me upset. Also, um... Love One Out was propagating theories about what makes you gay that were extremely similar to Freud's, like, your parents did something wrong theories. Mm. Um, so they're they're promoting, like, bad theories. But also, like, they hate Freud and they preach from the pulpit all the time about how Sigmund Freud is rotting in hell. And then they're using his <laughs> theories to like shame the parents of gay people who did nothing wrong because their children didn't do anything. This just all makes me really upset. This sounds about right, though. I mean, yeah. fair. Um, the other claim to fame of Exodus International, however, was the fact that in 2013, the head of the corporation came out and said that they were wrong about conversion therapy, that it doesn't work, and that they were sorry for the pain and damage that they caused. I guess that's a, I mean, that's a unexpected. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I mean, that's not what you expect to have happen. But I, w I wonder how long they knew it didn't work for before they made that statement. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But we're, I'm going to get more into that statement later. I also found an interesting tidbit when I was researching the rise of Christian ex-gay therapy, by the way. Do you know who was part of a group who spent $600,000 on advertisements supporting conversion therapy. 600000 $600,000 in the 80s and 90s published advertisements supporting conversion therapy in major publications like the New York Times and, and major national newspapers. So it's, oh my God. So is, is it the Duggars? Yes. <laughs> so the Family Research Council, that's where alleged pedophile Josh Duggar 
worked during his year in Washington, D.C. when he was trying to be a politician before he got caught having a Ashley Madison account. Mm. The same year where he also allegedly <clears throat> hired sex workers and then allegedly assaulted said sex workers. Yeah. And he also had to go to, what was it? Uh, Jesus. He had to go to Jesus Fix Me Camp. We know that yeah. that didn't work. Be- so I don't see why it would work on gay people. Didn't work on Josh Duggar. I know, but uh, but anyway, I thought it was so interesting. Like Family Research Council just comes up like every episode that we do sometimes, um, yeah. and they spent six hundred thousand dollars plus six hundred thousand dollars conversion that's, therapy ads in like the eighties and nineties. That's such a fucking huge amount of money, dude. The holy shit. in the eighties and nineties, six hundred thousand dollars. How much is that now? That's like oh, it's got to be double, right? Or close yeah, to a double, triple. That's so, got that's got to be like. I know. And so, and that was like, that had to be DeVos family money money. because like the DeVos family was, was connected to FRC back then. That's stupid amounts of money. Jesus. So I'm going to tell you about, so these ads featured uh, a supposedly ex-gay man and his supposedly ex-lesbian wife um, posing happily and saying, look how good our marriage is. And I'm going to tell you about that man in a few minutes. who was the model for this ad. So through the efforts of the Family Research Council, Love Went Out, and Exodus International, the Christian administration of conversion therapy peaked around the turn of the millennium. And there were a lot of semi-famous people who would be nationally, like not like famous famous, but like Christian, like fundy famous, you know, like Jack Scott was like fundy famous. And these people would be nationally known for saying that this therapy worked on them. So, like, there would be some guy, and he would be like, I was caught up in the gay lifestyle, but I went to such and such conversion. Gay lifestyle. I know. And now I am so incredibly heterosexual that you wouldn't believe. Check it out. Football. I have a wife who used to be a lesbian, but now she's fixed, too, and we have great great sex, and we have five kids now. Oy vey. So like you, there would just be like yeah, this guy who was like a spokesperson for conversion therapy and being like, "Hey, look how straight I am! It totally worked on me." <laughs> so through, so we're talking like late '80s through the '90s, there were all these people who would be very publicly ex-gay. They would speak at churches and they would write books about how God healed them or fixed them. And there were lots of non-famous people, too, just church members who would be publicly out as ex-gay. And they'd get married to other Christian people and they'd have families and pastor churches and everything else. But this went about as well as you would expect as time went on. Yeah. (laughs) Many prominent men in these ex-gay circles eventually got caught doing not ex-gay things. (laughs) And some of them were like crimes. Some of them were like you know, assaulting sex workers and stuff. And oh, I, but but I want to get into one of the, the much more wholesome examples of this. There was this guy, John, and I, his last name is P-A-U-L-K, so I'm assuming it's Polk. He was literally in the middle of all of this. He was like one of these like proof that it works guys. He was actually in some of the print ads that were funded by the Family Research Council. He was one of their models. He and his supposedly ex-lesbian wife. He founded Love One Out for Focus on the Family. And then when Exodus International bought the Love One Out brand, he was twice elected the chairman of the board of Exodus International. This guy was like the ex-gay movement, one of the faces of it. And then in the year 2000, um, during one of his terms as chairman of the board of Exodus International, 
he was in Washington, D.C. He was on a speaking tour about how conversion therapy had fixed him and how he was totally not gay now. And he was seen in a gay bar. Mm. And this is like, like gays kind of have a, and I speak for myself, like including myself in the word gays, um, queer people in general kind of have a reputation for liking drama. And I don't want that to become like the only stereotype of queer people, but it does kind <laughs> of like fit for a lot of us, including me. Um, so I'm calling hey, myself man, out here. <laughs> don't leave me out of this because the straights love drama is, too, listen, even if is, we don't want to admit it. <laughs> this is why you get along well with gay people because like you're heterosexual, but you've got a lot of like the personality traits that we like. Oh, well. <laughs> like being a drama queen. Thank you. I, You know what? I love to hear it. I love you're to like, hear it. That's that's the thing. Like <laughs> yeah. you're like incidentally heterosexual, but you also own like gold platform boots. You have great sense of style, and you're a real f- drama queen. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so I think that's like why you have gay friends. I'm and, very chill, but also like <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're, and you're into day drinking. Like you have a lot of like stereotypically gay traits for for a straight guy. But like, hey, you do you. Be happy. I am very happy. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> This is why I say that it was, it's kind of like, kind of comes off to me like a gay happening that the patrons of this gay bar recognized him and called a gay activist. And like this activist ran a group oh called God. Truth Wins Out, which was an anti love one out group. And this activist showed up at the bar and confronted John Polk, who lied about who he was. Oh. And then the other guy was like, no, like my organization was literally started to counter your organization. I know who the f- you are. And then Polk was like, well, I only went into his bathroom. And he had been on video in the gay bar flirting with other men for an hour. This is incredible. I wish that Twitter were around for this. I know. Um. I know. I know. I know. I know. This would have been so good. So I think it's like extremely predictably, Mr. Polk later came out and said that ex-gay therapy conversion therapy doesn't work and that he was wrong to promote it and that he had never not been gay um like he made an extremely heartfelt apology and now he's a very prominent caterer here in portland oregon oh wow well i'm happy that he no longer has to live in self-denial but that story is fucking amazing (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like the story is really is really funny um but like the guy turned out to not be an asshole at all like he was like hey you know what um i was wrong about this i apologize for this and i want to live my authentic life now so there's just like a lot of good stuff in that story including a lot of drama anyway um i hope that that john is happy now um he certainly looks like he's doing great I looked him up, like, uh, his business, and his business is starting, and, like, I'm like, oh, good. I hope he's happy. And I hope the people that he Especially during the pandemic. Catering's yeah. got to be hit rough by that, that by that shutdown, man. Well, a lot of them were doing, like, individual meals or, like, family meals. Like, caterers were doing, like, family meals. Mm. Um, Like, oh, we'll drop by four meals, or people went into, like, food delivery. Like, we'll bring a meal to your house every night this week. Oh, wow. Okay, you know? that makes sense. Anyway, um... I hope that John Polk is happy. I think he's kind of done his sentence, you know? And I hope the people that he hurt along the way have also found happiness and found freedom. And I wanted to tell his story specifically because 
like it's this is one of this is not like the disturbing story some other leaders in the ex-gay movement got caught putting other people in danger or doing actual crimes like and like harming other people and that's how it came out that they were still gay what you're saying that people are uh, are gonna be gay do crimes um no these have are not like that meme yes i have but these aren't like fun gay crimes these are like bad oh. crimes oh um yeah like uh one of the leaders in this movement got caught because he knew that he was hiv positive and he was purposely infecting other people oh god that's and horrible he was a current leader in the x gay movement and just like going around behaving like that that's so, insane that's what the f that's like that, some that's jack chick like, shit. like that's a terrible thing to do no matter who you are and like this guy was just so he was like hurting gay people two different ways, Why? and that's just Ooh. awful. I think. Um, but Pollock, like, the, did he do the right thing? Like, no, because he was not living authentically. But also, he's really redeemed himself with his actions and his words since then. So I wanted to share his story because it's I think it's more fun. Mm. But I I want to, I mean, as ridiculous and like this story is like such poetic justice. As I, I want to take a step back and think about this critically. So, say you are a good Christian woman, as uh, you have been in the past, Sadie. Uh, right. Or could be now. <laughs> I don't know uh, if you still meet that standard. <laughs> Probably not. Um, and you meet a man who seems like a perfect gentleman. He is kind. He is attentive. He listens to you. He is emotionally available. Stable job on fire for god oh and he has never given any indication that he wants to have sex with you before your wedding day basically the total package right right you know if you're if you're a fundy but then he tells you that before you get married he has to confess that he used to be gay and he went to conversion camp and god fixed him and you don't take this as a monumental red flag well, I think a lot of times the women that would end up with ex-gay men were ex-lesbians themselves. So it was like a redemption story arc. Uh, how many of those marriages were just to keep up appearances, though? Like, mm. you, you know, you get married to somebody and then you're off living your gay life, but you're married on paper. And, I mean, we know that, yeah. that, that at least some of them were because of people like John Paul, who eventually, I don't know, what's the terminology? We came out. Or came out as XX gay. Like, I don't know mm. the terminology, but we know that some of them were definitely just kind of paper marriages because of how it came yeah. out in the end. I mean, I, I mean, that's what I would do, though, right? I mean, oh, you yeah. know, you, you get in there, you find somebody, you're like, look, we both know this is bullshit. We got to keep up appearances. So why don't we just say that we're in love and we and like get married to each other instead and then just be gay and live as we're supposed to live? You know, I mean, that's I mean, that's what I would do. Right. That's yeah. the logical thing to do. It's just because of because of my own experience, because of my own experiences and building on my ideas that I've talked about before about self brainwashing. I think that many of these people may have entered into these relationships like these like ex-gay relationships thinking that they were successfully turned straight. Like thinking, like brainwashing themselves into thinking that it did work. And then years down the line, the brainwashing wore off and they realized that it wasn't true. That's that's just my opinion. Imagine, that, I mean, that you're probably right about that to some degree. But, but like, because like imagine, imagine though, say you were like ex-gay 
you're married to somebody else who's ex-gay and you've both brainwashed yourself into thinking this works. This works. I'm not gay anymore. And you have to exercise all the self-control in the world and like all the praying to Jesus to make this work. And like, then you catch your spouse doing gay stuff again. Like that would probably make the whole thing unravel. Like, wouldn't it? I mean, you know? yeah, I would think so. Right. Like, so say I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm ex-gay married to an ex-lesbian. Find out she's out like, you know, at, at, at you know, I mean, I'd have, I mean, probably I'd have Grinder downloaded by the end of the week, or you know, I guess whatever the lesbian version of Grinder is. is there I think a lesbian the lesbian. Ver- I mean, I think the lesbian version of Grinder is probably just going to hang out at a Subaru dealership, right? <laughs> or like, is there a is there a, a bar across the street from the REI? Or the animal <laughs> shelter, or the U-Haul rental place? Oh, <laughs> hey, oh. <laughs> anyway, um. So many of the former leaders in the X game movement have come out and said it doesn't work. Yeah. So this, this practice is kind of passed on from psychologists to mainline evangelicals to fundamentalists and like specifically very strict fundamentalists like the IFB. Um, it's kind of even come out of favor in like more mainline evangelical, like Southern Baptist convention groups and so the torch has been passed yet again to, to very strict, very, very strict groups. A lot of them IFB related, like Reformers Unanimous. Hmm. Uh, RU was mentioned last week when we interviewed Evan. Of course, he said that he was sent to a Reformers Unanimous to try to overcome his uh, same-sex attraction before he came out as trans. So conversion therapy is still legal in something like 30 states, unfortunately. Hmm. And in many, many of those states, I don't have an exact number, but in many of those states, minors can be sent to conversion therapy without their consent. Children can literally be kidnapped out of their beds by strangers that their parents have hired to kidnap them and turn them straight. And that's legal in how many, maybe over half of states. Wasn't former Vice President Mike Pence a huge proponent of uh, conversion therapy? Yes, Pence uh, specifically worked to keep conversion therapy legal and specifically supported electro th- electroshock mm. therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, because there was a whole meme about Mike Pence electrocuting gay teens, right? Yeah. You, you remember that, right? Like, I remember some dude on the internet made a whole comic book that was like a superhero comic book. Some guy on Twitter. But it was with Mike Pence. And he had like electric powers like he could shoot lightning out of his hands like the emperor in star wars but the drawback was that his power only worked on gay teens oh my yeah (laughs) i mean it it, is sadly it is often teenagers that get sent to this kind of place just mentioned in her story that she sent us that if she had been under 18 when she was outed she very well could have ended up somewhere like that without a choice her story may have ended very differently yeah and we've mentioned the roloff homes before and our listeners may have also heard about the recently closed Hepzibah House, which was an IFB torture center for underage girls. And if an IFB teenager is outed, it's likely that they will end up somewhere like that, like a roll-off home, the Hepzibah House, the Agape Boarding School, or Alert, which is where Josh Duggar was sent for his original sex crimes when he was a teenager. I mean, I feel like, I mean, we make fun of conversion therapy because we know it's a bunch of nonsense. 
but like i mean just like how we make fun of like cults and fundies but this is insidious and it needs to be illegal yesterday absolutely it's it's got to be banned immediately so i would like yeah well i would like to read a statement from alan chambers um he was the ceo of exodus international at the time of its closure I think this is really well, well written and it's a satisfying example of an actual apology, not like, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. Mm. So um, I'll go ahead and read that. Mr. Chambers says, please know that I am deeply sorry. I am sorry for the pain and hurt many of you have experienced. I am sorry that some of you spent years working through the shame and guilt you felt when your attractions didn't change. I am sorry we promoted sexual orientation change efforts and reparative therapy and reparative theories about sexual orientation that stigmatized parents. I am sorry that there were times I didn't stand up to people publicly on my side who called your names like sodomite or worse. I am sorry that I, knowing some of you so well, failed to share publicly that the gay and lesbian people I know were every bit as capable of being amazing parents as the straight people that I know. I am sorry that when I celebrated a person coming to Christ and surrendering their sexuality to him, that I callously celebrated the end of relationships that broke your heart. I am sorry that I have communicated that you and your families are less than me and mine. Wow. Holy crap. Yeah. I mean, that's a real apology. I felt like that was worth the airtime because he didn't come out and say, well, I'm sorry, and, and being gay is not a sin. Like, it's it's pretty clear to me that, that Alan Chambers still believes that it is a sin. Yeah. But he was still able to make a real apology that honors the dignity of the people that he hurt and treats them as people. Yeah. It was it unprompted, too, though, right? It, it was unprompted. Yes. Yeah. Like, there, there wasn't some scandal that he got caught up in that made him do it. Uh, he just was like, I'm... I, I just need to do this. Yeah, that's correct. So there had been peripheral scandals, um, nothing that would have forced the organization to close. He was a CEO and he led the board to a unanimous vote that what they were doing was not working and the organization should close. And then he didn't have to make an apology or even a goodbye statement, but if his own free will, he thought that he needed to make an apology and that's what he chose to say. Wow. So I thought that was, that was, um, I don't know. I thought it might be a kind of a healing thing for our listeners who have been hurt by conversion therapy, by homophobic, homophobic people in their lives. Uh, I thought it might be healing to hear a actual real apology. Yeah. And I suppose that if you're raised in fundamentalism, right, you believe from the bottom of your heart that being gay is a sin and you believe that you can fix people like, but you know, after a while, you see that like all of it's for nothing, that all of these, you know, it's only causing pain. And that one person after another that you was like, this is a success story. And then like a, a, a few months down the line, a few years down the line, I mean, they, it's, it's, it's they just, you realize that you've done nothing to help them that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that they're going to be gay because that's how they are. That's who they are. Like, I mean, that's, you know, and then they shake off who God made them. Yeah. You shake (laughs) off that repression or you see them shake off that repression. I mean, that's got a way on you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's this guy doing now? So I actually don't know. I wasn't able to find any kind of follow up on, on what work he's Mm -hmm. doing now, but that does conclude my brief history of conversion therapy, the X gay movement, and the XX gay movement. The XXXX gay movement. Yeah. 
Are, are there any organizations, though, that are actively working to make conversion therapy illegal in all 50 states? Yes. The organization that exposed John Polk uh, in Washington, D.C. is called Truth Wins Out, and it was started as a protest group against Love One Out, but Truth Wins Out is still active in fighting conversion therapy. The names of it, Love One Out is like... I know. Um, of course, there's That's also crazy. the Trevor Project, which I personally support. Um, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, GLAAD, the United Nations Human Rights Council, and the International Rehabilitation Council for Torture Victims. Yeah. All of those groups are working to make this illegal. And as always, uh, last week, Evan told us about the Vashti Initiative, uh, which isn't an LGBT rights org per se, but they do provide resources to cult survivors, including resources to LGBT cult survivors. Um and also, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, go listen to it. We had a great conversation. Uh, before we wrap this episode up, because this is about uh, what we're done with the history of conversion therapy. Uh, before we wrap this one up, why don't we... Do you want to read another listener story? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Why don't I read this one? Is that cool? Yeah, fine. Go ahead. Okay. Oh, uh, this story, the the one that I think you should read is the one from Nicole. Uh, Nicole identifies as bisexual. Yay, team bisexuals. Uh, and she uses she, her, hers pronouns. Okay. So Nicole says to us, Hi, Sadie and Gabrielle. I was born and raised Catholic in New York. But the summer before I started high school, my family moved to North Carolina. In New York, I went to Catholic school. But the only Catholic school in our area was too far to be an option. So my parents enrolled my brother and me in a non-denominational but mostly Baptist fundamentalist Christian school. Before we moved, I had figured out that I was bisexual, but never told anyone and kept it to myself for a very long time, primarily because of my high school environment. I was shocked to find the Christian school way stricter than the Catholic school. Also, most of my classmates had never spent extensive time or even been friends with someone who wasn't fundamentalist before. Another shock to me. Even though in New York I had gone to Catholic school, I had friends in my neighborhoods of various religious backgrounds. My Bible teacher knew I was Catholic, and he had taught in a Catholic school before, so he wasn't weird about it like some of my classmates were. One of my classmates, who ended up becoming a good friend of mine, wrote me this long letter about how I need to get saved because I had mentioned purgatory. She even drew the rapture. And I was so taken aback at how seriously everyone took it all, especially the biblical literalism, which I had which I had never heard of before. I was taught evolution as fact in Catholic school, and I can't remember being told in religion class that people who weren't Catholics uh, couldn't get into heaven and that we shouldn't date or be friends with them. Plenty of my uh, classmates came from interfaith families. Man, this is such a fish out of water uh, story. Yeah, no this kidding. Yeah. Um, our school used Abeka, uh, Abeka, Abeka. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to do a whole episode about it. Our episode used Abeka curriculum, which is made by Pensacola Christian college. Oh, Hey, that's where you went. Um, yeah. The books we used for history and Bible classes in particular, mm -hmm. unsurprisingly had negative views and straight up lies about Catholics in them. And at first I felt kind of obligated to raise my hand and be like, that's not true. But by the time I got to senior year, my classmates knew we well enough to know that a lot of the stuff about Catholics in the textbooks we used for Bible class weren't true, and they could ask me if they weren't true. Sometimes 
if what the book said was really bad, they'd go out of their way to apologize to me, which was unnecessary because they weren't the ones who had said it, and to assure me that they didn't think that way about Catholics, you know, because you're cool. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. Mm. Even with these positives, I started getting paranoid about the rapture and hell, which had never been on my radar before and would sometimes get sick day before chapel because our school invited so many fire and brimstone guest preachers to preach. Although one surreal sermon included the preacher ranting about how he was tired of Jesus being portrayed as sexy in movies. (laughs) All I had to say about that is rock me, rock me, rock me, sexy Jesus. I was just going to, I was going to say that, uh, passion of the Christ too. You remember passion of the Christ when we watched that? Yes. we got to see Jesus side butt for like 20 for like 10 frames. Yes. And it was, yeah. Anyway, um, after conversations with my friends from high school who are now out of that movement, we agreed that it was pretty effective indoctrination. I can't count how many times my friends got saved over and over again in high school because they were convinced that last time wasn't real or good enough. I certainly don't blame my high school friends for the things they might have said or done back then because at least I had the advantage of knowing other than that belief system. They grew up in it and had way more restrictive lives than I did. My parents, who were stricter than a lot of my friends' parents back in New York, suddenly became the cool, easygoing ones because my new friends' parents were so strict. We also didn't go to mass regularly, and some of my friends expressed that they wished they didn't have to go to church so often because they felt like they had no free time. On some Fridays after school, they would want to hang out at my house because my parents played regular music and let us watch PT-13 movies on our own. Those times were so fun, and it was like we had a chance to be as close to regular teenagers as we could get in that environment. Still, there was always a bit of a disconnect. I knew my friends didn't have high opinions of LGBTQ people, and it wasn't uncommon for guys especially to call each each other LGBTQ slurs as jokes. Around 2014, I was sitting at lunch with my friend and her boyfriend, who we couldn't call her boyfriend because dating wasn't allowed at the school. Uh, and she had mentioned that Russia had banned queer people being queer publicly and that people trying to teach each other about it or spread info would be sent to jail. They seemed more than happy about it. And it kind of hit me that no matter how close we got, I could never share my bisexuality. This important aspect of my identity with them because they view it as awful sin and that's essentially criminal. To this day, I'm closeted to a lot of the people because I'm terrified of losing friends I care about so much. So to add on to the new paranoia of the rapture and going to hell, I was scared of people at school finding out about my sexuality and my parents sending me to conversion therapy, even though they've always been pretty neutral about queer people. Through all of it, I never wanted to stop being bisexual or try to pray the gay away. I just wanted my friends to change their minds about queer people. Since we lived in the middle of nowhere and I didn't have a car, my relief came in the form of Tumblr. I know, but it was, I mean, that's legitimate. That is legitimate. Um, But it was the community I desperately needed at the time, especially in exploring my identity as a bi person. 
Unlike most of my friends, I had unrestricted access to the internet through my laptop and phone so I could look up just about anything without fear of being found out. Sexuality wasn't a huge issue in Catholic school. I think because I went uh, when I went, I was so young and also because we lived in New York and same gender marriage had been legalized there uh, last year I lived there. Some of my classmates did have gay uncles or lesbian aunts. I really don't think the school wanted to piss off any parents regarding that. So they just kind of avoided it. Things got easier when I went to college. There was a point I seriously considered going to fundamentalist Christian college that our school pushed a lot just because so many of my friends were going there. I knew I'd be miserable and talked myself out of it. I'm so glad I did instead and went to public state university and got super involved in their gender studies program and local activism. I was able to be myself around like-minded people for the first time in my life. Also, as some of my high school friends have gotten out of fundamentalism, they are starting to learn more about the LGBTQ community and feminism, and I'm able to help them with resources and connect them to community leaders and organizations. Like I said, the people from that high school who I'm still friends with are wonderful, but for the ones who aren't totally out of fundamentalism, I'm scared that coming out to them will destroy the friendships that we've had for going on 10 years now. I want to think our friendship means more than what they think about my sexuality, but I'm still not sure and I don't want to risk it. Also, still living in the South, I'm a bit worried about coming out publicly as I don't want it to affect my employment or other opportunities as I'm still in a conservative area, even though I'm about an hour or so from the liberal city where I went to college. I guess we're never fully separated from the struggle, but now more than ever, I'm confident in my identity as a bisexual Catholic. Maybe too, everything that has happened in high school was for a reason. I did meet great people and I'm better able to empathize with people in cults or repressive religious environments. I hope I helped my friends and classmates a bit too. Sorry if this was a bit long, but this is my first time I've really written about my experiences at length, and it may be rambling. Thanks again for everything that y'all do. Happy Pride Month. Best, Nicole. Well, Nicole, I am sorry that you had the absolutely insane experience of going to a fundy high school as a bisexual Catholic. Yeah, I am also (laughs) sorry that you had that experience, but I am hearing recently, just this whole Pride Month so far, I've just been running across stories of other queer catholics and that makes me really happy first episode of the month we had one from a from a a, a queer catholic yes from sam and, and sam's then, sam was raised sam, charismatic yes. catholic and then i've also had like people run across people on twitter um somebody who's followed on twitter tweeted about um who is like a, an out queer person tweeted about how they uh converted to, to catholicism after an acid trip uh which was a <laughs> fantastic story it just it just makes my heart full because I have a lot of hope for the church. Like the church is old and changes of any kind are just way too slow. And that doesn't that doesn't excuse the lack of changes that need to happen. But I do think that within my lifetime, I do hope that within my lifetime, the Catholic Church will be marrying people of all genders and ordaining women. I don't think they will be ordaining queer people within my lifetime, sadly, but I think within chuck's lifetime i think that's totally possible 
Yeah. Well, that's the thing, though, is that like if you have a really ancient institution, right? Is that like if there's an institution that's that's around now that's been around for like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, I mean, they, you know, they know they have to change. They have to evolve to survive. So sometimes things like if you want something that is going to be more willing to accept change, it, it seems counterintuitive, but you have to go for the older institution because the newer mm-hmm. ones are going to have that fresh edge that just hasn't been ground down yet. You know, sands of time. Right. Yeah, you you so, see what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. So what you're saying is like uh, the Catholic Church is more likely to accept queer people within my lifetime than Stephen Anderson is. Oh, absolutely. That, I mean, oh, that, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Cause, cause like, I mean, Catholic church, it is a big organism and like, you know, there is a lot of inertia there. Yeah. Right. There, I mean, there, there's a lot of old, 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 old doctrine. And there's a lot of people in that church that are, that are conservative. Um, and it has, and it's worldwide. Yeah. That's and the, the other thing. Yeah. A large percentage of, of older Catholics are not going to be in favor of these changes. And I don't really I, I wish that those people would just suddenly become, you know, have the same brain as me and become prog- super progressive and like want these changes. But I understand that that's not how it happens. And, well, and society is evolving. Right. Right. And like, I don't really blame people for having old. I, I blame those who have hateful views. I don't blame people who have so much who have old fashioned views because hate doesn't typically go away. Like tradition changes and like non-hateful I just don't get X thing that changes like, Hey, hate doesn't go away, but like, I just don't understand it can go away and can change. Anyway, I think what you have to remember is that one day people in Chuck's generation will be priests and bishops and even the Pope. Like one day, I don't know when that'll be, but one day somebody who's born in who's younger than me will be the Pope. Like one day somebody who's Chuck's age will be the Pope. And if I have a son one day, my kid could one day be a bishop or a Pope. And maybe the church will even like put the lightning speed on and move quickly enough that Chuck or another daughter of mine could be ordained in the Catholic church. Like one day it's going to be her generation in leadership. That's the thing about the, the perpetual nature of the church is that the, the, the person who's Pope now is like 50 years older than me almost. But one day it's going to be someone my age and in one day it's going to be somebody's Chuck's age. And I don't think that these church policies are just going to not change eventually. And when I, when I'm raising my child, what I have in my mind is that, you know, she's going to be part of the generation that makes this kind of change. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's the the goal that I'm looking towards is that she's going to be part of a generation, not just in the Catholic church, because she can go whatever direction religiously she wants, but that, but that, you know, one day people, somebody of her generation is going to be president. Like one day, someone of her generation is going to be the CEO of major corporations and that whoever she grows up to be, that that she will be part of the generation that makes even more changes and that she will be a brave leader in that generation. Well, I mean, that's a good sentiment to end on. Um, Sadie, would you like to tell the nice people what we have planned for next week? I am so excited for this. Yes. I'm uh, unbelievably excited for this. Next week, we are fin- finishing out Pride Month on a high note with our interview with Dinah Housefire, who is a drag performer and all-around hilarious human being. 
We think you all are really going to enjoy that. Oh my god, I'm so fucking pumped. This is going to be the funniest shit. Oh, we <laughs> should do we should do like mimosas or something. Mimosas and drag queens go together, right? A virtual drag brunch. <laughs> I got some good comments on Wine Sadie from the uh, Dating with a Porpoise episode. <laughs> so okay. I feel like I feel like I need to make the return of Wine Sadie. Yeah. So you, what you do a mimosas? I might do cognac because I'm a baller like that. I have no, no tolerance because I just had a baby, but I can I can handle some mimosas. I think it's going to be a literal drag brunch on the podcast. That's what's that's, that's what it's going to be. What we should title the episode is like. Leaving Eden drag brunch. Yeah. Anyway. So one thing, uh, if you listen to this show, one of the things that we're going to... So Dinah was raised uh, IFB, right? Dinah was raised IFB, yes. right? Dinah also uh, had an exorcism after catching the gay demon in China. Yes. So <laughs> that's going to be nuts. And listen, this might come off as really <laughs> cynical, but I'm pretty sure that exorcism didn't quite work. Uh. But tune in next week to find out for sure. <laughs> We will also have one more homework episode for you next week, uh, and it's Gabby's Choice. So do you want to tell people what we are doing for the last homework yes. of Pride? Last homework of Pride Month for Pride Month. We are finishing it off. We are reviewing some music. And what better music to finish off Pride Month with than the music of Lady Gaga? Right? Right? Right. right. I'm, I'm truly excited for this because when we were writing down podcast episode topics like a year ago and we were talking about oh we could do a homework section with this you know this was one of the first ones that i wrote down because lady gaga went at least when i was in high school extremely popular you know i I started high school in 2007 and i think that's the year that she really like blew up that she really started to get popular so all throughout high school um, she was extremely popular, and also it will. I think it will give us the opportunity to look at the trend of female pop divas becoming gay icons. You know that that's going to be something fun for us to talk about. Yeah, that's something that I like. I'm going to just be interested in kind of getting into that. I think. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm a member of the Beehive Facebook group. Again, you, know, you are all the gay things except for straight. That's true. That is literally what I've been talking yeah. about. <laughs> um, that's the thing, is that if I were gay, I'm pretty sure I'd know by now. That's, I mean, I don't. And also, if I were gay, don't you think I'd be super out? Like, Yes, I absolutely do. On, you are, like, you are um, not one to keep <laughs> your opinions to yourself. <laughs> no, yeah. If, um, if, yeah, you're, you're not one to, like, you know, keep secrets. If I, I mean, if I... If I were gay, everybody would know about it. <laughs> Let's be That's real. That's what Henry Rollins said. I just read this really good good quote by Henry Rollins. Who's Henry Rollins? Um, he was the lead singer of Black Flag for a while, um, huh. punk band, and then oh right, yeah, and then he like went off in his own did spoken word. And he's done like some. He's done like all the amazing things um, that you could ever possibly do in the world of music. Um, yeah. Anyway, also very handsome man. But he said that like he's like you know like. Like, I totally support LGBT people, but if I was gay, you would know it. There would be no closet. I would have burned the closet down. Like, you would have known about that <laughs> Yeah. But um, where, where were we? Oh, yeah. what should our listeners, um, if our listeners want to play along with the Lady Gaga homework, mm. is there something specific that they should be listening to? So I think, I mean, I usually, when we do music, I usually assign like an album, right? Right. But 
I, you know, there's so much stuff from her to talk about, but the stuff I mainly want to talk, at least for music, because that's what I have the most biggest reference for is the first three albums, right? So that's, uh, uh, the fame, the fame monster and born this way. Those are her first, first three, right? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, those are her first three. So, I mean, because I, I really want to talk about the hype that was going around when she first got popular, the controversy, um, you know, all the intrigue, the glam, the the meat suits. Yeah, the you know. meat dress is like specifically something that I want to talk about because I heard about that from the IFB end of it. Yeah, I mean, that that was huge. When she did that, everybody knew about it. Yeah. Everybody knew it. And um, like the IFB knew about it. That's how much everybody knew about it. Yeah. But also like we can't do Gaga during Pride Month and not talk about Born This Way. Right. Right. That would no, be that's... an injustice. That would be an absolute injustice. So we're going to talk. We're not going to talk about every song. But if you're familiar with much of Gaga's earlier work, you'll be fine. I don't know. Maybe we'll make like a playlist of like Lady Gaga jams. I don't know. I'm going to watch a bunch of her music videos. We're just going to. We'll just talk about some stuff. We'll just talk about her. If you're a fan of Gaga, you'll like it. If you're not a fan of Gaga, we'll try to be as as uh, informative about it as possible and post links uh, so you can All follow right. along. Yeah. Well, I think that's going to be a fun homework episode. Yeah, and I think I know the Dida episode is just going to be a banger. Oh, um, we've talked about some really heavy topics, but we're going to close out this Pride with more of a celebratory note. I think that's going to be. I think we balanced it well. Congratulations to you podcast buddy oh well thank you yeah we talk about dark stuff but we try to keep it positive and empowering and validating before we get to before did you have you checked out dinah's youtube channel i have a little bit um there's an episode oh my god the heavy there was an episode where it's like reviewing uh in like sparkling waters oh my goodness no i haven't yet it's the funniest <laughs> See, I'm afraid that we've invited someone on the show who's funnier than both of us, and that we may just like have, I have a coup. No, I have like, no what if problem it's a coup it. attempt, and we just don't have a show anymore after that? No, look, Sadie, this you know what this show is. I mean, your story is way more interesting than mine. I'm just kind of <laughs> in here, like I'm good with that. I'm good with riding coattails, like <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true <laughs> This is your story. I'm just here to to to. Be a, edit um, out my baby crying <laughs> <laughs> that's what you're really here for yeah no we, we got good stuff coming up for the rest of june we got good stuff coming up for july it's gonna, be, good. gonna be great um i don't really want to tell people exactly everything that we have planned for july because um i like the intrigue but we are going to be doing one of our most requested episodes in july uh so I, we don't we can't guarantee to do every request that we see um, just, just for logistical reasons, but we do enjoy when you send in episode suggestions. And when I see, I kind of keep track. And when I see several people requesting the same thing, I like to do an episode on that. If I feel like I have the material and have something to say about it. Mm. And I think I speak for both of us when I say that we want to make content that you want to see that you, our listeners are going to enjoy so we are going to be, I've been trying to do one of our most requested every month, um, just as I, as I can. And we're doing one of those in July. Wait, which one's that? Uh, oh, right. That fucking weirdo dude. Yeah. Oh, you should bleep that in the regular cut and leave it in the Patreon. Yeah. 
so we're we're gonna do uh we're gonna do another uh and A Q&A episode also at some point. So keep sending emails to like if you've got questions to leavingedenpod at gmail.com. And I do save questions from the Facebook group for that. But if you want to be a hundred percent sure that they that both of us got our eyes on them and they didn't just get lost in my screenshots with a million pictures of my cat and my baby, send them <laughs> to the podcast email address. Yeah. Is there anything else we're asking for emails for? Um, not unless Allie Raisman is listening. Ah, uh, yes. Allie Raisman, if you're listening to the show, email my heart and say our love will never die. <laughs> that I, was I a Britney Spears it. lyric. Oh, okay. Cool. Once again, I'm just <laughs> killing it out here. Um, For mm. somebody who doesn't appreciate it because they don't know pop culture references. Yeah. You don't know that song, Email My Heart, Britney Spears? No. I, I swear know, I've brought it up Britney on the show Spears. before. I've talked about it before. I don't know if I knew that it was a reference. I thought that was just a thing you said. No, there's a song called Email My Heart. Okay, so I know Toxic. I know Talk, that's a banger. I know Oops I Did It Again. Banger. And I know like one other one. Is it You Drive Me Crazy? Nope. Is it the one where she's like, it's Britney B? Yes. Is it Womanizer? Maybe. Yeah. So I know like three, and then I know like three Britney Spears outfits, and then I saw her Saturday Night Live thing, mm. and that's like the only. That's about it. So what I'm saying is that we also need a Britney Spears episode at some point. We, I, I would be highly in favor of having a Britney Spears episode. Uh, okay. Yeah. So anyway, uh, <laughs> we've rambled enough. Uh, if <laughs> anyway, now that we've done our Patreon content for the week. <laughs> yeah. So if you. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, if you want to join our Facebook group, it's facebook.com slash Eden Exodus. Uh, if you want to join our Patreon, once again, all of the money from the Patreon for the month of June is going to the Howard Brown Health Center in Chicago, Illinois, providing much needed health care to the LGBTQ community. Uh, and you, So you can join our Patreon. Uh, anything other than that uh, you can follow our Facebook and Instagram at leaving Eden podcast or Twitter is at leaving Eden pod Sadie you want to plug your social uh, yeah you can follow me on Twitter at hell yes Sadie on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter music and I'm not going to tell you how but I got the hell yes Sadie uh, handle for TikTok I am oh. going to tell you how. I had signed up for TikTok in the past and forgot that I did it. And I thought oh. that somebody else had the handle. And then I realized, oh, that's my handle. And all I need to do is remember the password. And then I can take my own TikTok handle. And then so I can no more having like a one on the end of your, your TikTok <laughs> so handle. Like a fucking scrub. Like a- I know. And like one of my videos hit 30 something thousand this week. And now <laughs> it's like with the stupid handle. Um, mm. So one. there's a f- Formula One driver who is currently leading the championship of Formula One, and he has a one on the end of his Twitter handle. And I'm like, Max, my guy, what are you doing here? Like, what? Like, what? Why? So why? anyway, I'm gonna fix my TikTok handle now that I figured out what I did. Why some stranger that was actually me had my TikTok handle that I wanted? What? Um, I am one of the cool kids. So let me tell you now. So my TikTok is You're gonna cool be cool, mom. Yeah. See, you're cool enough. You're cool enough to have a TikTok, but not cool enough to know how it works. That's the not sweet cool spot. Cool enough to like totally work it. <laughs> and um, you can follow me on social media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Clubhouse at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. Yeah. And and all of this has been the Leaving Eden podcast. 
yeah thank you so much for listening uh we hope that you guys have a good day happy pride month all right bye-bye Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.